Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. It's my pleasure to be speaking today to Professor Maria Bucco about her new book, The Nation's Gratitude, World War I and Citizenship Rights in Interwar Romania, which has recently come out with Routledge. Maria is the John W. Hill Professor of History and Gender Studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. She's the author of numerous books on Romania and has written extensively on biopolitics, eugenics, nationalism, women's history, gender history, and the histories of war and memory. So this book brings together all of those interests into a short volume looking at the question of veterans' rights in Romania after the First World War. Maria, you point out in the book that there were over 2 million veterans in Romania after the First World War, which was more than 12% of the population. Can you tell us a bit about these people? What do the average veteran look like in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, religion, politics? Uh Thank you for these, this introduction and for your question. Um, let me start with saying that it's really hard to describe the average veteran um, because, first of all, the kind of information we would need to have to talk about averages um, is not all there. Uh, and this, of course, speaks to the rather speculative nature of many of the things in my book. Um, the other thing about asking about averages is that it somewhat flattens out the kind of complexity that we're seeing in Romania. So let me um, give you a picture of this complexity, which is that um, the population of veterans in Romania after the First World War, in fact, combined not just the folks who fought for the Romanian state during the war, but also every veteran who ended up becoming a citizen of Romania after the First World War. And that means, for instance, that in terms of um, ethnicity and religion, the uh, homogen the homogeneity of uh, the veteran population. Uh, if you think just about the old kingdom, uh, which was really 
predominantly 90% uh, or more ethnic Romanian and Orthodox Christian uh, went down to 70% or less, depending on how you're counting things, after the war, right? So the diversity in terms of um, religion and ethnicity in the Romanian veteran population uh, grow significantly, amplify significantly mirroring, of course, uh, the larger uh, demographic shifts that happen after Romania uh, is able to acquire Bessarabia, Bukovina, uh, Transylvania, and of course we're counting also um, southern Dobroja, so there is a Bulgarian population that becomes part of Romania as well. Um, as far as age, you know, it's an interesting question because we don't really have the statistics. Uh, so I can estimate um, based on the kind of records that I was able to look at. Um, these were men that, and they were men, yes. Uh, that is something I can say with certainty that with very few exceptions that I can talk about a bit later, uh, this is 100% a male population. Um these men were, on the average, let's say, a little bit older than Cornelius Aracodreanu at <laughs> at the end of the war, so that we can think generationally about um, these uh, these references. Um, the other thing I could say is that in terms of political leanings, again, hard to tell. Um, most men in Romania did not get the vote until after World War One, so their political leanings are hard to gauge because when they vote in the first election, uh, I think these leanings um, are hard to consider um, well-informed or uh, deeply embedded in some kind of political consciousness or culture about the Romanian parties. Uh, in addition to that, you have populations that were part of the Austro-Hungarian and Russian empires who come with their own political leaning. So there's not an average political leaning. Um, I can say, however, that Averescu and his People's Party did attract quite a bit of interest on the part of the veterans, um, at least at the beginning. Um, and that I think is as much linked with the kind of support uh, that he provided for the benefits that veterans received, as well as the kind of persona that he embodied for the veteran population as somebody that they understood and that they saw uh, reflecting their own experience in the war. Um, so it's a very diverse, actually, and um, quite complex population, yes. which is partly why the first half of the book you focus on the Veterans Administration itself, uh, which was called the National Office for Invalids, Orphans and War Widows, or IOVERE. Uh, what surprised you most about the way this administration functioned once you started going through its archives and looking at you know, its paper trails? Um, so I should say I didn't have too many expectations. Uh, just finding an archive was the, was the really great surprise because I wasn't very hopeful when I started. And when I realized that there was quite a bit of material in the archives, uh, uh, that was the, the great uh, surprise in a positive sense. Um, but the one thing I have to say that um, I did not expect, and as I started reading uh, through the archives, is the extent to which non-governmental organizations um, are from the very beginning a core partner for um, developing not so much the legislation, of course, they're not involved in that, that is passed in the parliament, but in articulating on the ground um, 
both kind of logistics, but also giving shape to policies and even conducting the census um, <clears throat> that was to be done at the very beginning to assess just, you know, how many veterans, orphans, uh, and widows existed in Romania. So this partnership is something that I haven't seen discussed in the historiography at all. Um, and I, I think it's a, a very uh, important component of thinking about the ways in which a state that really tries to be centralized and wants to um, articulate a nationwide set of comprehensive and homogenizing policies, in fact, ends up depending on a number of um, partners who may or may not share the same aspirations. Um, if I could give some examples, um, I would... Yeah, okay, good. Uh, so um, there are organizations that are actually named in the legislation from the very beginning. And um, one of them is uh, the Society uh, for War Invalids, Societata Invalizilor de Razboi. This society is an organization that was established during the war um, by a number of doctors who were simply overwhelmed with uh, the number of injuries that uh, the soldiers were experiencing. And and the kind of injuries, which of course are much more severe due to the kind of armament that's being used. Um, and so the society starts to organize some clinics in Yash because that's where the Romanian state was at that point housed, right? And um, to engage in both, you know, surgical um, operations to deal with the, the soldiers' wounds at the time, but soon thereafter, realizing that these are long-term disabilities, um, they start thinking about rehabilitation. They start thinking about um, different ways to both measure what is happening to the veterans um, and also how to engage with rehabilitation. So the entirety of the policies having to do with disabled veterans is a ground-up um, operation. It's an operation that starts from doctors. Um, some of them are in the army at the time. Others are volunteers, or they're simply working in the hospitals in Yash and a few other locations in Moldova. And then after the war, because they have this expertise that is nowhere matched in the country, they become uh, an official partner. And that means that the Romanian state is extending to this organization a substantial uh, subsidy every year. Um, the organization has to account for how they're using that money. Um, and that's actually to our benefit, historically speaking, because uh, Yuan Gilamila, who is the main um, architect of these uh, uh, operations, um, keeps very good records um, and is able to narrate and writes different um, reports about the activities of the Society of War Invalids over the years until the society is incorporated into Iovere into, in the mid-1930s. So we have basically 20 years worth of data from him um, that cover the kind of work that he did. Um, and that is a, a goldmine, I should say, um, 
another surprise, uh, of course, th uh, that I um, found as I dug further and further into the work of this society was that I couldn't find, in fact, many of the things that Gilamila talks about. So he published several reports, as I said, and in one of these reports, um, I, I don't know why he was doing this, because it, it's rather um, unusual for Romania uh, at that time, but at the very end of the activities of the society, uh, there's a final report and a very large bibliography at the end where he uh, mentions all the things that he had done on behalf of the war invalids. And one of them is apparently an archive of 70,000 individual files for these patients, which included a lot of demographic information and then the medical information that's connected to the rehabilitation. That sort of archive would be an amazing thing to find. And in fact, um, if there is somebody out there that knows where this archive is, um, I think everybody uh, would be uh, <laughs> in their debt for bringing that to our attention. I'm afraid that it might have been lost because I have not been able to find it anywhere. Um, so that was a big surprise. The other big surprise is the other um, organization uh, that was involved in this case in the protection of orphans. Societata pentru Ocrotira Orfanilor de Razboi, the Society for the Protection of War Orphans. Uh, this is a surprise to me because uh, this is an organization, again, started during the war and in response, bottom up, uh, to the fact that there were more and more children left without a father due to the losses in the war and some orphans that had lost both of their parents due to uh, the, the losses of, among the civilian population in the war. And so this society... Um, which is led by Simona Lahovari, was one of the ladies-in-waiting of Queen Marie, um, ends up being in charge of doing the census of all the orphans, um, war orphans in Romania after the war, and becomes the largest uh, non-governmental organization in Romania as far as organizations that receive uh, funding from the government uh, to do work on behalf of government policies. Um, it is also the largest women's organization. It is for orphans, but it's almost entirely uh, led by women in interwar Romania um, in terms of developing its own policies, its own training, its own centers for employment and placement. It is a huge operation and very successful, it turns out, again, under the 1930s when it's incorporated into the state um, apparatus. Um, completely understudied. Um, I have not seen really almost anything about it. Um, so it's a, a kind of a discovery as far as I'm concerned. Um, and also a discovery that ties back to my interest in eugenics because it turns out that frankly, not surprisingly, that um, many of the women who are involved in the top leadership in this organization are hearty supporters of eugenics um, in the old uh, kingdom, but also, also in Transylvania. Um, and I think I remember from, from the book that this organization was also spectacular at keeping records. There's nothing like a good, good record keeper um, for a historian. 
Yes. Especially they, when they pipe up their ideas. Yes, yes. Uh, so one of the things with this organization uh, that, uh, again, brought about keeping good records is, yes, they receive very large sums of money every year from the government uh, for which they had to account. And so they were obligated. And I think there was a, a very good evidence that they kept good records. They were actually sued by some other um, veterans organizations, I think, because of a sense of not understanding fully where all the money, and there was a lot of money going to this organization, was actually being spent on, right? Um, And so because of the lawsuit, uh, the organization has to come up with very good documentation to um, describe everything they're doing. And in the end, they're cleared of all charges precisely because they have good records. Um, and so that also allowed me, indeed, to uh, dig a little deeper into the kind of focus that they had, uh, what sort of assistance they provided, and who their partners were all over the country. And there's some interesting findings in, in that regard as well. So there is competition between veterans. Um, and one of the things you mentioned earlier in the conversation was that the veterans are not just from the Romanian army, but also from people who fought in a lot of different armies, including against Romania. Uh, but one thing that every historian worth their salt knows about interwar Romania is that nationalism is really strong. Um, how does nationalism shape the veterans administration? Did they discriminate against ethnic minorities? So, um, in a sense, this is one of the surprising <laughs> findings, uh, at least the way I'm reading the archives, which is that while na- nationalism is very much at the foundation of the legislation and um, how the administration is put together, uh, in fact, the, the title of the book takes after the name of the legislation the nation's gratitude. So there's a sense that the nation exists there and that it owes a debt to these veterans. Um, and the nation is understood in 1918, 1919, of course, as being ethnically Romanian and religiously Orthodox. Um, however, Romania is also a signatory of several treaties, including the Minorities Treaty. And so um, there is, from the very beginning, a an attempt to uh, think beyond a narrow understanding of nationalism in the way that I just described it. Um, and while I found that surprising, uh, at the same time, I, I understand it to be an attempt on the part of the state to give this enormous population of men a buy-in into um, the uh, the new state that they were a part of. In other words, if a person, um, and I think their focus was primarily on the veterans, but it ends up um, affecting a very large number of women, the war widows as well. So if a person at the end of the war um, declare their loyalty, their citizenship to be Romanian, um, they could have the exact same benefits as those born in Romania who are Romanian citizens. So what's interesting in these definitions that are changing after the war are a couple of things. One, um, before the war, most of the Jewish population of Romania, as we all know, were not citizens. 
um, because of the kind of anti-Semitism that was embedded in Romanian legislation after 1878. And so um, those uh, Jewish um, Romanian soldiers who fight in the war are primarily volunteers because they're not citizens and therefore they are not recruited in the same way that ethnic Romanians are recruited to fight in the war. And so uh, for the Jewish population uh, from the Old Kingdom, the war becomes um, a means to sort of show how much they are in fact part of the Romanian nation and uh, how much they are loyal to the Romanian state and Romanian king. Uh, It's an effort to alleviate some of the anti-Semitism that uh, is of I would say, mainstream in Romania at that time. Um, For those who were part of other states before the First World War, so we're talking about folks who had fought uh, in the Russian army, in the Austro-Hungarian army. Some of those were ethnic Romanians, but a very large part of them were not, right? They were Hungarian, um, they were Austrian, uh, they were Russian, they were Ukrainian. Of course, uh, there is a significant Jewish population that lives in this area as well who self-identify in a variety of ways. So uh, the aspiration at the beginning of this um, legislation um, and the setting up of the administration is that um, basically any veteran will be considered um, as worthy of receiving the benefits if they simply sign it. I'm not sure if you've ever seen what these look like. They are documents that um, ask somebody to you know, state clearly, what is your um, ethnicity? What is your religion? Right, And then to state clearly that they from this point onward, declare their loyalty uh, to the Romanian state. Um, So it's documentation that clearly separates ethnicity from citizenship in terms of like how we understand nationalism in the relationship between the individual and the state. And so people are asked to very um, explicitly you know, situate themselves within that um, ensemble of multiple identities. Um, And the very document suggests that there's a capacious understanding of citizenship or nationality uh, in relation to ethnicity and in relation to um, your religion. This goes for uh, widows as well, as I said before. And there's evidence, the evidence that I found in the archives is that um, there isn't explicit or uh, frankly, even implicit uh, kind of ultra-nationalism, at least at the um, central level of the administration. I should say that I have not probed into every nook and cranny of you know every locality in Transylvania, for instance, to examine whether, let's say, in areas that are you know almost exclusively um, like Odorheiusekuiesk, right, uh, Hungarian, um, whether the same kind of um, understanding of nationality that I just described is being extended not just in the letter of the law, but in the implementation of uh, the policy so that, you know, uh, veterans, for instance, who do not speak Romanian fluently um, know about the law, 
and are able to access their benefits. Um, I do know, however, as I um, pointed in the book, that uh, in a place like Hunedwara, which was predominantly Hungarian before World War I, um, the vast majority of widows that are written in the census for beneficiaries are not Romanian ethnics. They are Hungarian ethnics. Um, and that they receive these benefits. And so that to me is not a sign of, you know, ethno-nationalism, but rather of really trying to be more capacious um, and to uh, include non-ethnic Romanians in the, the application of the law. What I did see in terms of ethno-nationalism is push by ethnic Romanians against the sort of... Um, treatment of ethnic minorities. Um, and I don't know if you remember, but there's a couple of examples that I give. Uh, one comes from a veteran, another one comes from a widow, both of them ethnic Romanians, who use um, pretty uh, stark uh, ethno-nationalist language to level accusations against ethnic minorities that they are receiving better benefits than the Romanians. Um, and the one thing that I saw, there is an absence of any kind of uh, attempt on the part of the central authorities to correct these uh, uh, mis misperceptions and misrepresentations of what the state was doing at that time. Um, so that I can say is, is, a, is a tension that runs, um, I think, uh, more bottom-up than top-down uh, in the 1920s and 30s. There is a rising, of course, endo-nationalism in the Romanian state and how uh, politicians and the government uh, start to understand their relationship with, for instance, um, Hungarian minorities or uh, the Jewish population in Romania. And so by the end of the story that I'm telling by 1938, uh, there's a clear break that happens in the legislation and the way the administration understands its relationship to ethnic minorities, which is, in this case, racialized um, ethnic minorities, which is in this case to um, basically withdraw the rights that um, a third of Romania's Jewish population have as, as citizens of the country in general, and therefore also um, the veteran population, very, very few exceptions. So what you're able to show quite quite beautifully is how complex it is um, and how this, this ethno-nationalist language exists that some people use it, some people don't, and the administration itself surprisingly is actually quite even-handed. Um, and what you, you mentioned quite a few times um, just then, this idea of citizenship, which is a question um, that Konstantin Yodaki has a recent book on, on the pre-war period. And you've talked about it um, in The Birth of Democratic Citizenship, which you wrote with Mihaela Miroyo for the socialist and post-socialist periods. Um, but in this book, you write that with all the petitions that veterans and people who thought they should have been veterans um, are writing to these organisations, you say that these petitions let us see how the average citizen from the smallest village furthest away from Bucharest made sense of their newly gained rights after 1918 and how they chose to approach the government to obtain those rights. What what do you think we learn about citizenship from these sources that we didn't really know before? What I really appreciated about the, the archival documentation that I gained access to is the kind of language that people who are not 
well-educated. Um, some of them, in fact, many of them, I think, are illiterate and working through intermediaries, but still um, trying to access their own rights, how they come to understand themselves as engaged citizens, citizens with rights and not just obligations towards the state. I, I think that um, before 1918, given the fact that so few individuals have access to political representation, that that is something that's not not um, clear, not uh, concrete to uh, to many average Romanian citizens. Um, after the war, um, and especially with this legislation, which, as I said, touches, I think, virtually every family in Romania, right? Um, and it touches every family in Romania, not in a abstract sense, being told you're now a veteran, but rather in very concrete ways. Being a veteran means you get a pension. Being a veteran means your kids go to school for free. Being a veteran means that you can travel on Chefere with, um, you know, very little or no cost to you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, not to mention the land reform where veterans uh, are supposed to be first in line for any kind of land re- redistribution. So these are all very concrete ways in which the state makes itself present in the everyday life of citizens and responds to their needs in a way that is unprecedented in terms of the magnitude of uh, the benefits that are being extended in terms of how many people are affected by this. And again, the variety of people being affected. The fact that there are so many types of individuals writing back who use, as I said, different kinds of language, but with some light motifs in them that I talk about in the book was extremely interesting to me uh, in terms of really understanding how the state becomes a concrete component of how these individuals think of themselves as living their lives every day, also in relationship to the communities in which they are, also in relationship to, to sort of points of authority such as the mayor of the village, such as, um, let's say, the prefect of the county, and even talking about, you know, going to Bucharest. I mean, the the example that I give of this Austrian woman who is, I think, very literate or illiterate, um, but who ends up traveling to Bucharest from this little village up, you know, the top of the country, and she just goes up to, how did she know to go there? I mean, it, it was fascinating to me to just think through the process of somebody who is not fluent in the language that is currently used in the country, but somehow manages by, you know, audacious sort of asking and probing to make her way from her little place in the country to the steps of the Ministry of um, Work at that point is where Iovere was, and to talk to people there and to persuade them uh, that she was aggrieved and that they should support her. Um, and we see them responding positively to her immediately. Um, that to me was uh, incredibly powerful to see because this sort of a voice that um, your average you know, person in Romania has in speaking to the state was not clear to me before. I have to say, I've written about these things very differently until I got to this book. My thinking before this book was that a sense of engaged citizenship 
doesn't really start for a large part of the country. And I'm talking in this case about women. You mentioned my book uh, with Mihaela Miroyu, Birth of Democratic Citizenship, um, where, you know, I was thinking through sort of what sort of rights women in general were getting as citizens in into a Romania. There wasn't much going on. After 1932, uh, you have married women become sort of full persons in the law. Um, and then... After eight years is the war, and then, of course, the takeover of the communist regime. And so at that point, my thinking about citizenship, especially among the 50% of the population that I'm speaking of, was that they really didn't experience uh, a sense of empowered, engaged citizenship in relationship to the state until after really 1990 in the in a kind of full sense of legal, economic, social rights. Um, this research and the findings that I'm have that I made by by looking at the voices of widows for instance and also of orphans of female orphans not to mention the the people who the women who are working in the society for the protection of orphans suggest to me that this sense of engaged citizenship the kind of active um belonging and um kind of assertive uh relationship with the state was there already in the 1920s. And and that, for me, is a big finding. Yeah, it's it really, um, it's quite a shock because yeah. when you read the Birth of Democratic Citizenship uh, and you, you you lay out what rights women did have, there's just so few. Yeah. And it's amazing that anyone could, could think of themselves as a citizen. But in, in this book, there's example after example. Um, and gender in particular is a key category of analysis. In, in this book, um, as it is in so much of your work, how did the notion that veterans were intrinsically male shape the way that men approached the administration and the way it treated them? Um, thank you for this question. I uh, had long put aside the question of how masculinity is shaped by interactions between citizens and the state. Um, and this was one of the reasons I wanted to work on veterans because it gave me the opportunity to really start thinking about masculinity as something that is not just assumed, but it is performed, it is negotiated, and in which the state has a lot of power, but individual men um, also have uh, important forms of agency. And so there's important ways in which the war really reshapes the way men engage with the state as veterans um, and also those who are not veterans because of the very large veteran population that kind of ends up affecting larger categories of masculinity. Of course, the first thing to lay out is that universal uh, male suffrage is passed after the war and because of the war. So the state tells men who had fought that that sort of contribution they made, that kind of sacrifice that they made for the country is something that has earned them uh, a direct say into the future of the country. It empowers them to be the architects of their own well-being. Before the war, the country was ruled by a tiny uh, minority of wealthy men, right? And so um, there's now an opening that uh, brings into the political conversation um, class. And of course, because of the variety of veterans that I was talking about before, 
ethnic and religious variety into how these men negotiate with each other political um, rights and uh, all that goes with it, the kind of policies that are passed later on. So that's the first point to make, right? And then there is the kind of, from the point of view of the strictly the Veterans Administration, the issue of um, what it is that that the nation owed, right? The nation's gratitude, what the nation owed these men uh, for their sacrifices. Their sacrifices are understood very much in gendered ways. Why? Um, at that point, um, men, legally speaking in the civil code, are the heads of their household and they are legally responsible for the kind of general well-being, but also specifically economic well-being of their families. They are the breadwinners. So that is written in the law. And that civil code and that understanding of men as the breadwinner is what shapes the discussions about the law of the veterans and also the veterans administration. Um, a veteran coming back um, is supposed to be supported by the state in such a way as to enable him to retain his position as the head of the state, the family. That means that he will receive land if he lives in the countryside to be able to uh, produce the kind of uh, wealth, the you know, economic uh, well-being for his family. Um, for disabled veterans, uh, this is even more pronounced. Um, there's a way in which veterans are evaluated with regard to their disabilities after the war. And to the best of my understanding, again, um, I'm still doing research on this, and maybe we can talk about it a bit later, but there are degrees of disability that are set up for these men. And the degrees of disability have to do with um, their able-bodiedness. There's no regard to mental health issues. I'll lay that aside for now. But what is understood by the administration is that the majority of these men work in the countryside or work in manual labor. Therefore, if they are disabled through the injuries that they incurred in the war from being able to fully exercise their role as breadwinners to work, what the state needs to do is rehabilitate them insofar as it is possible with the technology, you know, with the tools available to them to restore their ability to be breadwinners. So they, the, the very framing of that always focuses on the kind of responsibilities these men have. There's the underside to this, right? If these men coming back fail to retain their role as breadwinners, they can lose the quality of veteran. So to me, there is a very clear and uh, kind of almost one-to-one understanding of being a breadwinner, a man, and a veteran. And if you, for instance, ended up being a beggar in the street, not somebody who's working, you could in fact, and this is in the law, uh, and you could in fact lose your pension rights and you could lose you know, all the other benefits that go with being a veteran simply because you are not fulfilling your masculine role of being the breadwinner. And so um, when 
for instance, uh, various sort of attempts to change the law are are uh, done across the interwar period. This is the issue that comes back again and again uh, on the table. How large are the pensions? How uh, good is the rehabilitation? How can the state better, um, at the beginning, assist the veterans in becoming, again, the breadwinners, the heads of the household. And by the 1930s, we see a much more kind of negative tone to it, which is force these men to become workers. Uh, there's a shift that happens in the legislation where Iovere is supposed to become an employment agency for veterans as a way to make sure that instead of sitting around and begging, that's the image that they have, right? That these men are kind of lazy and they're not trying hard enough, um, that that the state uh, will now uh, basically make them work uh, in, in by uh, creating these employment agencies. Um, so it's, uh, it's very much about how the Romanian state and the Ovedi administration understands the, the specific gender responsibility that men have towards their families. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So being a veteran presupposes that you're a man. Um, and you said that the vast majority, almost all veterans are male. But there's also quite a few female veterans that turn up in this book. Um, can you tell us about how assumptions about gender and veterans being men disadvantages women who applied for veterans' benefits? Yeah, um, we don't know how many women veterans there are because they are generally not counted. So this is rather anecdotal and it's very much individualized. The, uh, the Basically, the state 
from day one understood um, the soldiers to be male. Uh, there were um, women who volunteered, of course, we all know by Katerina Todoroyu, who is now on the Romanian money. Uh, so she's very visible. Um, but these female veterans, um, she died. So she wasn't there to, you know, try to advocate for um, rights for women veterans. Um but those who stayed alive, uh, I have a, a very detailed example that I discuss in the book and in a different uh, article that I published, uh, Natalia Milica Germaneanu, who's a very uh, interesting uh, example. Um, so she <laughs> is from Transylvania, um, goes to Paris in 1914 to get an education, and the war catches her there, and she decides, instead of doing nothing, to enlist in the artillery in the French army, comes back to the Balkans before Romania enters the war, fights um, at Monastir, gravely injured. I believe her um, lower jaw was displaced and her face was disfigured. After she recovers, she comes back. She wants to keep fighting. She ends up being an officer in the French army. She is uh, becomes uh, <clears throat> a chevalier de la Légion d'honneur. Uh, so she, she's recognized by the French army as not just a veteran, but as a person of extreme courage and um, who deserves, in fact, if she had stayed in France, a, a very nice pension. And she makes the choice to come back to Romania after the war and then tries for about 15 years to get her rights as a veteran. The issue that she comes up against again and again is the fact that she's told by the EOVED administration, your case cannot be properly um, dealt with within the law. And they never say straight up to her, because you're a woman, we can't give you veterans benefits. Um, but she's denied these benefits again and again. This is after uh, there is even a, a veterans organization in Cluj, she's from Cluj, um, who writes on her behalf and who state very clearly, we are Romanian veterans. Um, she is a veteran. She is one of us. Please give this woman the same rights we have. Um, that is not good enough. Um, and so uh, really what is happening here is, again, back to what I was talking with regard to masculinity, that there's an implicit understanding of veterans as being men and of the, the kind of gratitude or debt that this nation owes them is being very much connected to that masculine um, uh, role that men play in the family and in society. What I am having a hard time still understanding is why one person like Milica Germanano, um, you know, why she would be such a thorn in the side of the government. And the only explanation I can come up with as a speculation is that they were afraid that if they opened the door to that, that other veter female veterans would come forward and that would somehow uh, destabilize the already um, inadequate budget that Iovere had and the kind of categories they set up. Um, I should say, though, that there's an important exception to this that was in the law with regard to gender. So in the very beginning, the Romanian state says, the initial law for the veterans, that citizens of the French uh, state can apply for veteran rights in Romania. 
And that includes um, women who are working, for instance, for the Red Cross in Romania. And there's not, I mean, there's not, uh, uh, you know, tons of uh, French citizens in that category, but there are uh, several names that, you know, uh, come up in the literature. So um, those women had the ability to um, ask for benefits. I'm not sure if they did. I have not seen any evidence of that. Um, But uh, not Romanian citizens that are female. But the point is, you can be a veteran without carrying a gun. Yes, you could. Um, And in this woman's case, and in a lot of cases, many of these people are disabled in a variety of ways. Um, And you talk in the introduction about the fact that this book is a contribution to disability history. So disability studies first emerges as an academic discipline in the 1980s, but it's only in the last 10 years or so that it's really gripped the imagination of historians. So... I wonder whether some of our listeners might not be too familiar with what it is that makes disability history different from other ways of approaching the past. Um, can you talk us through briefly some of the key presuppositions and methodologies of the field and how that shaped this book in particular? Sure. This is um, such a good question, and thank you for, for raising it. Um, what disabilities studies um, ask us to do is to decenter the assumption that is still very much part of um, our epistemologies as historians, for instance, of what is normal, what we can assume as being this kind of uh, the unquestioned center of our assumptions about how life functions and how individuals functions. So that, you know, we do not write about able-bodied individuals as able-bodied individuals, right? We assume they're able-bodied and we just say individuals. Disability studies ask us to think explicitly through what assumptions are embedded when we do not speak of able-bodiedness or about disability in relationship to individual lives in relationship to social structures, in relation to kind of political rights, citizenship rights that um, states extend to those who live in their boundaries. Uh, This is something that very few historians of our region, and in the case of Romania, you know, uh, I can think of a one five to six people um, that have done any work in this area. Uh, I consider myself a very much a no- novice and I'm very tentatively entering the fray because um, it's a, a rich and complex field. And I come at this as somebody who's able-bodied, as somebody who um, has herself not thought about these categories sufficiently. Um, And, you know, to out myself in my first book on eugenics, I'd only draw attention to the kind of assumptions that um, are core uh, in the articulation of both ideas and policies that eugenicists come up with, with regard to able-bodiedness, right? In in relation to kind of assumptions about genetic sort of um, traits or um, gender, for instance. Uh, So what I was able to do here is to take the empirical evidence, the kind of, you know, as I said before, measurements that um, the state starts to engage in with regard to, you know, 
how uh, far from our assumed norm of the breadwinner is a veteran in terms of uh, what sort of benefits then we can uh, extend to that person to make sure that he returns to his state of being the breadwinner, right? So, so the unstated assumption there is that all men in Romania behave this way, uh, that they are able-bodied, and that they are healthy in the way that is assumed for is the norm for the population. And therefore, to those men, women, men in particular, the state needs to extend a particular um, set of rights to to uh, restore them to, to their sort of normal capacities. Right. Um, there's many silences in the way that um, these policies are crafted and how they're implemented. And, and so one of the really important things that is running through, like the silence is running through some of this, is the issue of how disability is acquired and what is uh, the so-called deserving disability versus not, right? So if a person um, has tuberculosis is one of the ways in which disability is in fact understood, right? Um, How would it be possible to demonstrate that a man who comes to a doctor in 1920 uh, has acquired tuberculosis because he was in the trenches uh, and, you know, contracted tuberculosis from somebody else there versus already had it and passed it to somebody else. There's no way to really disentangle that. And at that time, there were no ways to um, to measure those things. But the state very explicitly said that only injuries and disabilities that are incurred in relation to participation in the war will be rewarded with any kind of benefits. So disability itself becomes tied to deservedness based on a kind of assumed type of heroism that is happening and assumed kinds of norms that uh, men are supposed to um, behave according to, you know. Um, that's that's kind of what I'm getting at with um, thinking through uh, how the disability uh, policies are developed after the war. I should say that um, this is my project now. Uh, I have um, a lot of images and 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 text uh, from that period that use um, tropes that engage with depicting disabilities in one way or another, and I'm trying to work through. Um, the hidden assumptions, the explicit um, sort of assumptions, and then how in the public opinion and also in veterans organizations, some of whom are disabled veterans organizations, other or not, right, uh, questions of disability are engaged with by by different actors. Um, There's, in fact, a a discourse about disability that um, becomes much more um, overtly present in um, Romanian society during this period. Um, and that's what you're you're trying to get at in the next project that you're going to. Yes. Is, what this general 
discourse is and how it's constructed? Yeah, uh, it, so this project that I'm um, starting now is actually um, trying to develop a network of um, scholars who work on disability studies in Eastern Europe. I, I found a new tribe, uh, and uh, there's about 10 of us uh, at this point in the group. Uh, there's another fellow who works um, on disability history in, in communist Romania. Uh, there are folks working on Poland, um, Czechoslovakia, Kia, uh, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, DDR, and Soviet Union. And so I, I, I need to complement that with a few other scholars from, uh, from the region. But we have a start um, for trying to think through how the First World War and then um, after the communist takeover, um, how that regime reshapes um, understandings of disability and engaging with persons with disabilities, um, you know, kind of moving into the present. That's fantastic because such an understudied topic in yeah. Eastern Europe, as you say. Yeah. Um, in a sense, the people who ended the war with physical or mental or emotional disabilities, they're the lucky ones um, compared to the ones who didn't make it back at all and who often leave families behind. Um, can you tell us a bit about the way that widows interacted with the Veterans Administration um, did they interact? Did they talk or behave differently to the way veterans did? Um, so it's it was really interesting to have uh, so much in the archives that pertain to both widows and to veterans, so that I could examine very directly, as you said, language that they used and also activities they engaged in. Um, there are commonalities for sure, but there's some significant differences that point towards um, the way gender norms were understood by both the state and by individuals living in Romanian society. So one thing that's um, really apparent from the beginning is there are uh, literally hundreds of veterans organizations that sprout after the first war. Um, with regard to widows organizations, there's just you know uh, a handful at the most. So there is a much, and, and of course there's, there's an obvious reason why that is, right? Um, there's first of all, the kind of community that is established during the war through the experience of the war of these men spending time together, who then might want to continue some of those unique experiences they have that actually separate them from their families and the rest of society, right? So some of these organizations are very much about the esprit de corps. Um, and that's a common occurrence all over the world, in fact, as far as veterans organizations are concerned. Widows are not a community. They are isolated individuals, in the case of Romania especially, who don't necessarily live together, who don't necessarily understand themselves as being part of a category of people. In fact, that is established as a category of citizens by the Romanian state after the war. So the exception of, say, you know, wives of officers who would have before the war and do after the war, they um, have ways of socializing together. They um, advocate for each other in, in a much more kind of organized way because they're more educated, they have, you know, more wealth. They tend to live in urban centers more than in rural areas. So those are all things that from a demographic, social, economic, cultural perspective, uh, give them a, a kind of foundation for having community. Most other widows, because the vast majority of widows are not those of officers, right? They're, they're those of your average rank and file soldiers, are just these 
frankly, very poor women who are, have children by and large and who are just trying to make ends meet from month to month. So the way they come together is around trying to collect their benefits. And I give an example. It's a powerful example, um, also because it's provided by um, somebody in the police, an agent who writes in a unusually empathetic way about a, a scandalous affair that he is able to observe, which is that a group of widows who have not received their pension uh, that month basically show up on the footsteps of um, the Iovere offices, oh, sorry, the pension house, pardon me, um, which is downtown Bucharest, right? So they know where to go. They don't come there organized, but they know what time the office is open. They show up. Sounds you know, pretty clear how that happened. It's not organized. It's very much, you know, bottom up. And then um, they are pushed and shoved down the stairs. Uh, One woman is gravely injured. And so their community comes together on the basis of the suffering and the kind of disrespect that they encounter on the part of the state. This is what makes them in a sense, community. They're very horizontal. They don't have, you know, an organization to speak for them or somebody who's in charge. Um, and that's a big difference between the veterans organizations and the widows. And clearly, you know, they are less able to advocate for themselves for that particular reason. Um, and there's a big contrast between those kinds of widows and the officers' widows, as I point out in the book, who are able to mobilize political you know, power and some big names um, in the Romanian parliament to try to pass a law that would give them, um, that particular group of widows, and not all widows, um, the same benefits as other widows of officers have. These are widows from Bessarabia who see that they are believe themselves to be uh, aggrieved because they are not receiving the same kind of benefits, the same pensions as the um, widows of officers who served in the old kingdom. Um, it's also the case, and this is the case with veterans as well, that's maybe a common thing um, between veterans and, and widows, that Class is a big divider between uh, the way in which um, advocacy operates both among widows and among veterans. Um, these uh, widows who um, were the widows of, of um, Russian uh, officers, um, Bassarabian Russian, um, I should say. I mean, some are Russian, some are not Russian ethnically. Um, they don't speak and they don't advocate for all widows. They advocate strictly for themselves. The widows go to the steps of the pension house. They don't advocate for every widow because they are barely able to advocate for themselves. Um, But they're advocating from a very general kind of universalizing perspective, which is here's our rights as widows. And we like to have them now because you owe them to us. Um, And not saying that, you know, we are a special category of widows, um, that are being aggrieved because there's other special categories of widows that have better rights, right? So uh, that's that's one way to think about it. The other issue is the language. Uh, you were asking me about the language. Men from the very beginning uh, are much more assertive and they are rights-driven in the rhetoric they use. Um, they talk about justice. They talk about the law. They talk about the fact that they served and they deserve the kind of rights they deserve and the state owes them these rights. So there's a kind of a position of entitlement that they assert much more clearly 
throughout the entire period. With women, um, there's a more um, hierarchical way of approaching authority. Um, there's a lot more of um, begging and requesting and asking for sort of favors at the beginning. And I, I use the word, um, unbend, the expression unbended knees, um, which is uh, one of the ways in which petitions used to be structured and the language that was used to kind of um, plead with the charity and the, the generosity of uh, people in power, right? Uh, so it's less uh, kind of like, you know, I'm a citizen, these are my rights, I'm here to claim them, and more, I'm a desperate widow, I'm starving, I cannot get by, my children are suffering, please help me, right? Um, that starts to change, and you see more of the rights being asserted I would say, into the 1930s. Um, it might have something to do with the fact that 1932, uh, women's, uh, married women's illegal incapacity is lifted so they don't have to, in fact, depend on men to you know, sign uh, any contract or you know, go and work on the workplace. Um, so that might be part of the reason it's hard to correlate those things very clearly. That's just kind of in the background. Uh, but there is uh, this difference in the language that they use. Uh, so we've talked about veterans. We've talked about widows. What about orphans? Um, if widows struggled to get pensions and rights from the state, did the orphans fare any better? Well, um, so orphans are in a special category because um, they are minors, and as minors, they cannot speak for themselves until adulthood. And so there's a paternalistic uh, way in which the state addresses orphans from the very beginning and throughout the interwar period. Um, this kind of caretaking position that the state takes towards the orphans. Um, they do struggle to get their rights fulfilled, but we don't hear about this until basically the 1930s when many of these orphans become adults and they start to write the state. So the way the setup is, is that um, for orphans, uh, a um, ward of the state is set up um, and that person has to be a man. Uh, if the widow of the soldier who died is, is still around, uh, she can be part of that family kind of group that um, the tutela is what they call it in Romanian uh, that takes care of the orphans. But due to the fact that the civil war doesn't allow women to have the same kinds of rights economically and legally, um, she has to defer ultimately to another adult male that uh, has been agreed upon uh, locally. So the orphans are in the care of this sort of group, or if they're orphans who do not have anybody to take care of them locally, they're taken to orphanages if they, there is one that can take them in, right? In the state orphanages, uh, state, okay, they are not really state. They are, <laughs> as I said before, there's this uh, Society for the Protection of Orphans that establishes these orphanages. So they receive money from the state, but it's a non-governmental organization. So in these orphanages, um, there is, you know, a record being kept of how their pensions are being used and uh, what they're going to receive when they become adults. Right. Those are pretty uncontroversial and it's fairly clear that there's no uh, abuses that happen. 
the quality of that type of care is hard to gauge. Um, and as I say in the book, if there were abuses, um, uh, there are no mechanisms for speaking to those abuses in the orphanages themselves. That is a, a problem that I cannot get around, those silences. For those who are kept by their members of the family, sometimes, you know, uncles or some other relative, plus their mother, um, if there is a mother, you know, and mostly in rural settings or in their village, um, those kids, when they become adults, start to talk about really desperate situation. In fact, I, I my sense is that these were some of the direst uh, problems encountered by the beneficiaries of this legislation and policies, which is you would have adults who, instead of putting the pensions the, the kids are supposed to have um, saved for when they become adults so that they pension can become either diary for if it's a, a young woman or a kind of a um, uh, savings that the young men can use to start a business or to buy some land or to engage in some kind of um, training in some uh, fashion. That money often evaporates, is not there anymore by the time they become adults. And um, they try to get the money back, but if the money's not there, the state cannot do much about it. There's also land that these orphans are supposed to get. And again, which would be uh, entrusted to them when they become adults, together with any kind of um, profit made off of the the whatever was cultivated on that land. Um, that seems to be a place where abuse also happens quite often because it's easy to say, well, we didn't have a good harvest and therefore there was nothing. Plus, you know, I had to take care of you. And so um, what these orphans find out when they become adults is that they might have some land. It might not be the amount or the actual land that they were given at the beginning it might be not as good uh, a uh, pro as productive a land as they were hoping at the beginning or was hoped for them or that the land is not there anymore and and they can claim it. Um, so there's a lot of aggrieved orphans on those uh, grounds. Um, and I should say Yovere is very sympathetic to them. Um, and one of the reasons for that is uh, the one of the fellows who works there, who's one of the lawyers and administrators at Yovere, is himself a war uh, orphan. And so my sense is that he really understands the predicament uh, in a, an almost visceral sense, in a, in a very personal, intimate way, and he tries to support them as much as possible. But there's both budgetary um, limits to what they can do and also limits, uh, legal limits to what they're able to accomplish with, uh, with the law itself. So some of these orphans uh, end up with you know, very little or nothing at the end of the day. These are these are horrible stories, but they actually make for quite good history because they leave paper trails and um, they expose a lot of what's going on um, behind the scenes. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your approach to writing the book, um, especially compared to your early work. In this book, you spend a lot of time picking apart individual sources and stories showing about how sexism, racism and other sorts of discrimination shaped them and what they show us about how power operated in interwar Romania. Was that a conscious decision to foreground the analysis of power or has it just emerged out of your intellectual evolution over time? 
Uh, I think the answer is yes to both of those questions. <laughs> I'm not sure that's an either or. Um, I was so thrilled when I got into the archives and I started to read these stories. Uh, they really um, made interwar Romania alive for me in ways that I had never had the privilege of contemplating because these voices, I had never heard them before. And so um, my process when I was doing this work was to really sit with these uh, individual stories, to try to map them, um, you know, to kind of even look through Google Maps at the geography of the villages they're coming from, for instance, right? To understand what they were looking at when they woke up in the morning, you know, what streets they were living on, and if that, if I had the addresses. I really went, uh, I did a deep dive um, moving through their steps uh, as much as I could, uh, you know, every day of what I had access to. Um, and that seemed to me much more interesting of a story to tell because it hasn't been really told before than talking about big categories. I also thought um, it's the big categories, you know, we I've written about them before, you have, others have, um, but the granular detail that comes out in the documentation that I had access to uh, is much more interesting in terms of really understanding, as you said, how power is embodied in everyday processes of people just trying to manage their existence and, and trying to um, use whatever tools they have uh, at their disposal uh, to make a better life for themselves and, and for those around them. Because a lot of what's happening, in, and that's something I haven't talked about with regard to masculinity, for instance, a lot of the discussions in these <clears throat> petitions that I read were about either widows or veterans talking about themselves as parents, talking about themselves as individuals who are trying to take care of their families and not managing so well. That was something that I just felt needed to be told full center uh, and not as a kind of reflection or more powerful uh, sources out there. It's also why I organized the book I did. I mean, I, I uh, realized that I had to tell the structural story at the beginning because it hasn't been told and it's a framework for which that's necessary for understanding the second part of the book, the stories, but it's those, if I, you know, uh, if I had a lot more, uh, <laughs> room in terms of, uh, the amount of words that the, the, the editor gave me, I would have extended, um, the stories about the veterans, the widows and the orphans much more there. I had to be very selective in the stories that I told because there were so many more that I could tell, right. As, as a way to illustrate these trends. And I would, um, you know, I, I fantasized for a while that I would set up some kind of um, online platform where I could drop these little stories once in a while um, to, to fill the picture in as time went by. Um, and I might still do that at some point, but, uh, now I'm thinking about disabled veterans and disabled uh, <laughs> individuals uh, more broadly. Yeah, you've got to draw the line somewhere. Um, <laughs> and I think we should probably leave it here as well. Uh, but thank you so much for your time and the insights on this really interesting topic. And if people are interested, they can go out and read the book for themselves, um, which I'm sure a lot of people will want to do now. 
uh, Ron, thank you so much um, for uh, bringing me on uh, to your show and um, for all your generous questions. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, I look forward to having more conversations with you at some other time. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.